This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Well, hello. Thanks for finding us and tuning in. I'm John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and it's great to be back on your various devices and podcast form. As in the past, uh, the format will be largely the same. I'm here for one-on-one interviews with influential, interesting, and innovative brewers and members of the brewing community. And like all good conversations, this show will take place over beers. The larger beer world has only a handful of brewers in the first name club. These are names referenced with awe, respect, and a nod towards the creativity that propelled them to the status they richly deserve. Mr. Garrett Oliver needs neither the Mr. or the Oliver in his introduction, although he is a gentleman and deserves the proper title. You know him as the brewmaster of the Brooklyn Brewery, where we are today. He's also the editor-in-chief of the highly acclaimed Oxford Companion to Beer, uh, author of the also highly acclaimed and influential The Brewmaster's Table, an accomplished beer judge, brewing industry fashion icon, and honestly, one of the more interesting people you're likely to come across in the larger beer world. Garrett, thanks for being here today. I can also sing. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, John. We'll see where these mics can go, and then we'll, uh, it's the inaugural podcast, well, so we'll I, have I, to... I have, I have a large, intimidating mic in front of me. <laughs> you know, I, you've been a brewer for a long time, and you've also, in, I think, transitioned in a way to sort of becoming an ambassador, not only for your brewery here, but also for the larger brewing community. Um, you know, you've lent your passionate voice to the cause of small brewers, both here and abroad. Um, and, and, and I've seen being out uh, at various events with you that you are sought out for advice by brewers. Wh- what do you think is the question that you're asked most often by brewers these days? And, you know, what do you see as the biggest challenge that the industry faces uh, that isn't talked about enough? That's a two pronged. But what's the question that you get most often? The question I get most often is from people who are thinking about becoming brewers and they're very passionate, you know, they're home brewers, maybe they have a Sabco or whatever else, so they've stepped up to a larger level, and, you know, they're getting the illness, you know, the love that that comes over you. And I always uh, say that the story of being a brewer is a story of diversion from your planned path. You know, you had a plan. It's the American plan. You get on the American plan, you go to college, you use the college to get the degree, you use the degree to get the job, you know, you have some money, you got a wife, you have kids, the kids have shoes, and they, and you have a car that yeah. you could drive them to their school in and everything else. But the thing that happens is that you fall in love, and the thing you fell in love with is beer, and beer then makes you poor. And you then, from that point, try to figure out how to do all of these things at once. You deal with the fact that you've thrown away the life you intended to have. We're just reaching now a, a, a cutting off point or a differentiation point where that becomes no longer true for you know, some of the new people who are coming along. Everyone had a past before. Now we have brewers that didn't do anything else first and always meant to be brewers. But the main question I've always gotten 
you know, is what am I going to do? I'm 32. I have a job. I make a lot of money. I hate this job. It doesn't do anything for me. All I want to do is brew. But my kid is like three years old. I have to take care of my family. And I can't give anybody financial advice. Sure. But the advice that I give them is that no two or three year old is going to remember being poor for two or three years. But what they will remember is unhappy dad. You know, so what are you going to show them? Are you going to show them self-fulfillment and following your dream as a value? Or are you going to show them stability as a value? Both of these things have value, but you can't always have both. And if you're going to do it, you know, go now. Don't wait until you have more stuff to lose because it gets harder and harder and harder. And that is, uh, I have heard from people many years later that that advice did something for them. And they're brewing now, and they're happy. You know, I, I come across a lot of frustration uh, when I talk to brewers, but not a lot of unhappiness. You know, there, there's always going to be frustrations in breaking, breaking equipment or uh, bad batches that are turning out not the way that you want. And, you know things that people can improve upon. But you're right. I don't actually see a lot of unhappiness, uh, you know, among brewers. And I don't know if that's just a result of the byproduct or if it's just a result of the, um, you know, the industry. I mean, how did you fall into this? Because you came from someplace else. Well, I did come from someplace else. I was going to be a filmmaker. My degree is in broadcasting and film. I was stage managing rock bands. You know, I liked it. I had an idea. And, you know, I, I remember virtually to the day, uh, the day that I decided that that couldn't be my path anymore. The now director, Peter Berg, um, who is now a, you know, a major guy in Hollywood, uh, Friday Night Lights and all kinds of other things, sure. um, was a friend of mine. We, we were at HBO at the same time, uh, straight out of college. We hung out, we made videos together, et cetera. And then Pete moved to, uh, to California and we get back together again, and he'd say, I'd say, what's it like out in Hollywood? It's like, oh, it's great, you know, projects and this and that and the other thing. And uh, you make all these great new friends. And now I have a new thing coming up. And I said, well, what happens with all your friends, these wonderful new friends, when you go on to your next project? It's like, oh, you get rid of those friends, and then you have new friends. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I can't live that way. The other thing was I kind of discovered that I didn't deserve to win. I, I was a good filmmaker, but I wasn't one of those guys who was going to go and get a hundred credit cards and max them all out to make to your... get a hundred thousand dollars so that I could make this film. Sure. You know, I wasn't on fire, but and I saw the people who were on fire. I said, "Those are the guys who deserve to do this. I can't. I can hang. I can't hang. Not with them." But with beer, I could, and I felt the fire, and I still do. And I think that's the thing. That's the thing that separates people out. It's like you do it almost because you have to uh, more than you want to. But going from filmmaking uh, to beer, that that is kind of a jump because, I mean, it, it's creative in, in one way, but it's also a lot more manual labor uh, in, in another. Was there an aha moment? Was there something that you had, something that you saw, something that sort of sparked that creativity that says, wow, I'm going to go ahead and do this? To me, it's, uh, it's all one thing. 
you know, it's a balance 50-50 or so between art and science and uh, filmmaking in that regard or putting on a concert, which maybe is less creative, though there are creative aspects to stage managing bands. But if you're putting something on the screen, you have to know how the camera works and how every bit of color temperature and everything else uh, especially in the old days when you really were working with film and it wasn't uh, it wasn't easy to adjust you had things, to be deliberate you yeah. know in in post you had to be you had to be deliberate and but you also had to have a creative flow or you would have no story to tell unless it was somebody else's story and that was the thing I didn't have stories I had a vision of structure and how to put something on the screen looking good but there wasn't a story that I wanted to tell. I didn't have that creativity. The story that I want to tell is in my beer. You know, that that is the medium. It is a film, you know, in, in a way. And it's a film of my life as I want to live it. And so, you know, when I, it was something that when I write about beer, it is one thing, and I learned this a lot from Michael Jackson, the beer writer. Sure. Um, is that I, it's I, would always about, I would hope that anybody listening to this would I hope know. So too, I, I know but, we still know, have to do the caveats, but yeah. Uh, I you know, I mean, well, you know, I, I find increasingly that Michael's place and his voice are lost to younger generations. So I'll, I'll you know, uh, I will encourage them all to go up and, uh, uh, and look up the, uh, the one master above, above all of us when it comes to that. But... It is uh, it's that all the stories are about people, all the interesting stories about people. Nobody actually wants to read about flavor. They really don't. You know, like, it's really interesting. Sure. But, I mean, I think it was Steve Martin who said that, uh, you know, talking about comedy is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> um, and it's the same with flavor. It's like, you know, like, I don't want to read your tasting notes. That's why my tasting notes tend to be propulsive they they read like sports plays because the flavor is not like a dead item it's a thing that happens to you over time it happened to you and what i'm saying when i write about it's like this is what happened to me right not this is what it tastes like speaking of telling your story there's three bottles on the table here in this uh back conference room where we're at and you said uh, you have a story to tell through them let me tell you what happened to me okay <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and then it happened to yeah, then it happened to some of my assistants yeah um and so uh the first two things that we have here are uh a ghost bottle example of this beer and you may have tasted both versions of the past but uh, and a uh, uh, and the commercial version of the same beer. Okay. So uh, this is called Kiwi's Playhouse. You know, we just released this, and uh, after we did K is for Creek. Yes. We started thinking about what more we could do with fruit. You know, part of the house religion uh, of the brewery is that you know we don't really use. We try to get as close to the source material as you can. We don't like extracts, we don't like oils, we don't like essences. You know, if you taste the beer from us and it's got vanilla in it, that means we got vanilla beans and we ground them up ourselves. Sure. Um, and so 
And we more wanted, often than not, you're going to the to the actual grower themselves. You're not going through a broker. Yeah, I mean, any time yeah. that we can. I mean, sure. certainly we have gone through brokers, but it's the same for barrels and whatever else. I'd rather talk to the master distiller than a broker, but brokers always have their place. Sure. So, you know, with, uh, with this, we're playing off of what we liked in wines. One of the big descriptors for, uh, uh, for a lot of wines, you know, uh, out of certain parts of the world is uh, tropical. And this is before people were talking about it that much, <laughs> you know, in the sort of juicy IPA realm, to which yes. I'm sure we'll come back. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, but uh, so Kiwi's Playhouse First of all, I was like, I, you know, that the kiwi fruit is a dis, has a distinctive aroma, is a distinctive flavor. I was looking at what tropicality is made up of from a, you know, organoleptic but also organic chemistry point of view, which kind of gets weird because there are a lot of the same kind of organic chemical groups that range depending on concentration from being, say, pineapple to something funky and cheese like. Right. Um, and you kind of see that in in like a ripe mango. It's like, yeah, it's bright and tropical, but if you pay attention, there, it's also pretty funky at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kiwis kind of have all that going on. We wanted to play with them. So we started off with a sour. It was a kettle sour. We barrel aged it together with fresh kiwi fruit. Okay. This is like three years ago. So this bottle, Kiwi's Playhouse, is about three years old. Um and I guess what I want, what I thought would be fun to talk about is how do you, you know, what, how do you get from point A to point B? Um, what happened between doing a few bottles and doing a bunch of bottles? What do we have to worry about in between? Um, and uh, and there, the thing is, there's there's always a lot to worry about uh, at the same time as uh, as you're having a good time. So. And ghost bottles, for those who don't know, these are these are typically things that don't make it outside of uh, outside of the brewery. You guys know where these go. These are tightly controlled, uh, probably yeah. sought after uh, in black market trades uh, right now in the in the beer community. But you have to do pretty well to manage that because, like, you'd have to talk somebody out of one at a tasting. What I generally tell people about ghost bottles, that is, is if you've had them, then you've met us. Okay. You know, it's almost impossible to get to, to get one and not have a conversation. Sure. You know, because that's where they are. Um, and that allows us to do all the things that we feel like doing that, frankly, we can't carry out. And there can be reasons for it uh, as simply as we can't get any more of the source material. Uh, and you can make... I mean, for example, we made a beer aged in mezcal barrels, and there were, you know, almost no mezcals put in barrels. Right. So there were six barrels. They came from Del Mague. I went and talked, you know, Ron Cooper out of them in Mexico, um, and he sent me all six barrels, and uh, they had been Pappy Van Winkle barrels, and they they were, you know, the beers turned out spectacular. But you, it's a trick you can only do once. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. A, it's, it's, and, and not for everybody. So this this shows some of its age now at three years, but it's still relatively bright and fresh, and the kiwi fruit character does come through. It does. It it, it has a, a bit of that candied strawberry, um, which which overripe kiwi falls into that as well. But uh, uh, it is very bright, and I, I I know you said you don't necessarily always like talking about flavors, uh, but this is one of those beers where 
just location wise, I'm thinking of a, a tropical beach somewhere and just yeah. turning off the cell phone and drinking a bottle of this and then taking like a nice nap on the beach. That's uh, that's what this beer was built for. And we were talking last night about the way people will sometimes hate on uh, on kettle sours, you know, where the uh, where the souring is done, you know, on the warm side rather than a low, you know, cooler, mm-hmm. longer, more difficult, frankly, uh, 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 fermentation. But the fact of the matter is that doing kettle sours well is actually not that easy, and very few people do it. So. To that point, though, because w- when you have people saying, oh, I want to get into to brewing uh, when, when they're coming in and, and asking you for the advice, I think it's easy for people these days to open up a brewery. Uh, it's harder to maintain it. It's harder to grow an audience than it was um, in the past, uh, despite how, how, how many breweries there are in the country these days, because there's not always the attention to detail. And, and I'm always surprised when I talk to brewers um, who have just opened where they don't go into the history, where they don't look to their elders, where they don't look to uh, how things have been done for a while and how things can be you know done the right way. And it's sort of astounding to me. And for, for somebody who's, who's been doing this for as long as you and somebody who has the, the breadth of knowledge uh, that that comes with being a longtime brewer. I mean, that's got to be frustrating, right? Well, what's frustrating, I guess, is that is that you have a range of people who have come along, who are being rewarded every day for mediocrity, uh, uh, and so believe that this is normal and they simply deserve, you know, to do well. And um, you know, my personal feeling is. You know, there's no reason to be embarrassed about being a, a, a professional and not knowing everything. But it's important to know that you don't know. Uh, it's important to be willing to say, you know, to say that you don't know. It's important to be able to ask people for help. Um, I mean, I have a couple of hop questions right now that I've like, by the end of the day, I'm going to get in touch with Tommy Arthur and Pete sure. so and... And Matt Brendelson, and I'm going to ask him some questions about, you know, uh, uh, about bioconversion of hop, you know, of, of, of hop things and, and processing questions where I'm like, you might know better than me. I'm not embarrassed. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I think you have to understand that quality, it's not like making a film. Quality equals respect. And that's the thing that people don't have. They don't actually respect their customers. Somebody went out and spent their time to make that damn money, you know, that they're giving to you. And now you have the gall not to have a lab. You know, you you don't you don't you couldn't care less. You just think you're so cool that no matter what, you're just going to put it out there. And so what if it's full of diacetyl? So what if it's uh, if it's turned or the bottles are blowing up? like if you you know if oh if that's what you wanted like a consistent flavor uh in the thing you bought you know for the under the same name last week you should you know you should go to Budweiser it's like well that's really nice that's great (laughs) at what point though and at what point do we the consumers so I'll, I'll I'll talk on behalf of the consumers start to stand up for some of this because you're saying that there are some of these brewers that are rewarded for a mediocrity and and I and I agree with that where you know people are standing in line for cans or they're standing in line and they're saying like oh wow it's so dank it's so it's so hazy it's so like this 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 is really great 
And there's no, there hasn't been the, the consumer education, I think, that gets people to the point where, is this normal? Is this actually what it should be? Uh, at some point, I think we all have to ask ourselves as consumers, you know, does the emperor have no clothes? Yeah, I think that's true. But I mean, you can't, you know, when it comes to things that are matters of fashion, you can't dictate fashion. So if people want a glass of something that looks like orange sludge and has no foam, mm -hmm. I think that it's helpful to, to for them to understand that, uh, and they may want the fact that this is a new thing and, and never in human history has anyone wanted a beer that looked like that. Right. Um, they you might have, have had very, it out of they've necessity. Worked, yeah, yeah. They've, they've worked very hard to avoid beers that, that are like that. And as long as you actually know that and you're like, well, this is the way I like it, I'm not going to tell you not to like it. But, you know, you you should also know that that beer won't, generally speaking, is not going to even last a week. Right. Um, you know, you got two or three days to drink it, which appears to be part of, in the case of the New England IPA, sure. uh, appears to be part of its uh, uh, appeal to people. Right. Make sure you keep it cold, because if it gets warm, it's going to blow up in your... And you, know, yeah. blow, you know, and uh, there are beers around the world that are like that. I mean... Uh, you know, beers like, uh, you know, the Bush style beer, you know, uh, in South Africa, which people sell in jugs on street corners. Sure. Having been brewed, you know, 48 hours ago. There are there are there are corollaries and these things happen. But if you tell somebody this is X beer and, you know, it's fantastic IPA and every week you come back and get fantastic IPA and it's different. And uh, you, you come back to them and say, well, you know, last time Fantastic IPA was clear. Now it's completely cloudy. Now, last week it was really citrusy. Now it's dank. Now it tastes like butter. Right. And your reaction is, you know, screw you. We're a craft brewery. Right. You know, well, craft doesn't have anything to do with inconsistency. Inconsistency simply means that you can't brew. That's what it means. The same as it means uh, uh, as a musician. The same thing that it means if you're a chef. You know, you can't put that lamb chop on the table, on all the tables, hot, tasting approximately the same way, night after night. You are a cook, but you are not a chef. Right. You know, and you have no business asking people for money. And I, I think the consumer, uh, when the consumer decides to push back, they will. Um, but they don't necessarily push back in public. They just stop buying it. And then the brewers who are making it are sort of left wondering, you know, what happened. I mean, it, you equated it to, to, to fashion in a way, and you can't really dictate fashion and fashion trends come and go. I, I do wonder if what we're going through right now isn't necessarily the powdered blue tuxedo of the of the 70s, where uh, popular for a time with the ruffled shirt, and then you look at it today and you're kind of like, oh, I totally think I totally think that it is. You know, remember Black IPA? Right. How long ago was it? <laughs> like. Two years ago, yeah. three years ago, yeah. now when, it seems like a puff of smoke that happened. You know, it lasted like nine months or something as a style. I now, know. We, when I was at All About Beer magazine, we actually uh, Brian Roth wrote a story for us because I put it out to him. I said, "Like, whatever happened to black IPAs? I thought they were going to rule the world." And uh, and he dove in and found out that the numbers are actually really down. And uh, occasionally, you're seeing brewers kind of come up with them a little bit. It's more in the Pacific Northwest where they're holding true to that Cascadian dark ale uh, the, moniker. The, the, but the, uh, yeah. yeah, and and uh, not that you can't make. I mean, I made beers like that back in the day. Sure. Greg Noonan famously uh, well, did. He, yeah. You know, lots of people did. But and he's credited with it, right? Yeah. Is that, and, yeah. But, there, but there became like a fashion. 
Greg of the like, Vermont Pub and Brewery. Yeah we're, yeah. Go- yeah, we're going to make now black IPA. It's like, well, first of all, you know, we've been everybody's been doing that for like 40 years. So sure. it's not like a thing thing. But if you like it, go ahead. And the best of them that were brewed in those days are already gone. I mean, like Wookiee Jack was awesome. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the fashion came and the fashion went. Right. And and you also have to know, if you're a brewer who's making these, you have to be able to read the tea leaves. You have to be able to look forward. You have to, I, I think, plugged in. Because before it drops off, uh, totally off the cliff, you're going to start to see the decline of it. You're going to start to see people uh, move away from it. And, and, and I don't know if brewers are always paying attention to that. They're just sort of riding a wave. And then, or some of the newer brewers. I think the, the more seasoned vets and the longer time that you're in this, you have a chance to sort of see it. But if well, the beauty yeah. of I mean, and I think this is maybe comes with time. Uh, but I think that it's a thing that some brewers have yet to discover. Where in a style they may see handcuffs, uh, a a a more evolved brewer, I'll say, uh, which maybe is a code word for old, but I'll I'll take it. Um, uh, uh, sees an opportunity, and uh, you know, great. I'll, I'll use uh, film as an analogy. Um, Pilsner is a Western or a James Bond film. There's basically one plot. Right. There's one plot. Maybe there's two plots. You know, the bad man is doing the bad thing to a really nice family. Father's ineffectual. You know, young son tries to look up to dad. But then another kind of bad man comes to town and opposes the really bad man to protect the family. And, you know, the uh, 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 and father, the ineffectual father feels uh, uh, emasculated. His wife is looking at the other good bad man. How many Westerns? I mean, it's the same damn thing over and over again. So you can say that it's boring. But the question is, can you do it with style? And if you can bring it off with style... Pilsners and Westerns and James Bond movies will last forever. There's not going to be a... Because they there there is an intrinsic beauty and tension in knowing the plot and like how well can you carry it out. And to have flair within a, a style like that is a beautiful thing. Um, well, it's the, it's the classic black tuxedo. Yeah, you know, it's, it never goes out of fashion. It's, yeah, uh, you can look at wedding photos from the 1950s, and they still look crisp and as good today. And if they're because, well yeah. tailored, you'll look good. And if you got a piece of crap, then you look like you know a sack, right? You know, but uh, but yeah, there there are things that are that are that are like that, and those are those are fun to brew too, and it's fun to be good at them and to be able to and to know that you can do it over again. I think that. That's when you know in your heart that you're that you're good. It's like I can nail that Pelsner with the same quality uh, 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 every time, and there is a a thing to it, you know. And I have a lot of friends who are chefs, and they're you know that's one of the things. You go to the French kitchen, they say, "Make me an omelet," and you yeah. can either do it or you can't. Right. And you might not be able to. And when that's you your make you or could. break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. Hundred uh, percent. You've brought up food a few times now, and the Brewmaster's Table, I actually went back and looked, published in 2003. Yes. Uh, and then the paperback came out in, uh, in 05. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's still a must-read for anybody uh, interested in a deeper explanation of beer and food. Um, and I don't know if you're actually working on anything you know new with it, but um, so much has changed in the last 
14 years uh, mm. since it was first published. Is there anything that has happened in beer and food that when you look back now, the 2003 version of yourself would be like, I never thought this would happen? And if, if you had to go back and um, you know redo the book, uh, how much do you think it would actually change? You know, that's a, that's an interesting question. I've kind of asked it of myself, you know, here and there. You know, the, the interesting thing about it is that I don't think I would have predicted that um, that what we thought of as a beer bar in 2003 would just become a bar bar in 2017. Sure. And that wouldn't be nearly specialized enough to be called a beer bar. Uh, I wouldn't have seen that coming. But I was purposeful in writing uh, something that I thought covered the basics of the classic sets of flavor. And I don't think anything that's happened in between, with the possible exception of the, uh, uh, the new prevalence at a relatively low level sales-wise, but still uh, important, you know, of, uh, of Brett. You know, acidity, on the other hand, is, is, is quite present, you know, in the book in the form of, of Berliner Weiss, Guz, you know, uh, etc. So all the food pairing ideas that are there are equally applicable, and that was a purposeful thing. I didn't want to write about stuff that I thought was going to go out of style or disappear, uh, both on the food side, you know, and you know, on the beer side. Sure. So I stuck within the realms of classics when it came to styles. I wouldn't have thought that the rise of you know IPAs and double IPAs would be as uh, 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 as as vast as it is, but then again, you know, there's a picture of any Salerzzo, you know, uh, picking hops even at the time, and we're talking about Pliny. Sure. And so that that those beers were even in there then, and I think that uh, the timelessness of the book was engineered into it. But even I'm surprised that it's still around. The great thing that I hear is people reading it now. You know, they're studying for Cicerone or whatever mm -hmm. else, and they still like it every bit as much as people did 12 or 15 years ago. And I think that that is the, the, the voice of the storytelling, uh, hopefully. And the fact that, you know, I, I purposely was not making a beer geek book. It was a book talking to ordinary people where you could start from zero, mm -hmm. knowing nothing, not be judged, and hopefully arrive at a place where you found something new to like. Sure. And that's, you know, and I think that's the that's the goal of the brewer, of the beer educator. You know, the thing that you're supposed to be doing is not to show off, you know, your access to this liquid or the things that you know. Who could care less about what you know? Sure. You know, the question is, are, are you interesting? And does this thing have a story to tell you? And... Can you do fun things with it? You know, if I get some of this, will my day be better? You know, and I'm in the book trying to tell you how you how you can do that, why it's fun, why it's interesting, and why your day is going to be better if you get some. And that's really what, what people want. There it's it is. The satisfying sound. <laughs> I remember talking once. I, I charity panel for Moe uh, Champagnes. Um, and we were talking about the brand of champagne. And one of the things they took from us, this bottle, the cork, the wire cage. Yes. You know, the whole package really is a beer package. But to me, there is no sound 
in, you know, in humanity that across any number of cultures is more celebratory than the sound of a cork popping. Absolutely. No, it, it is one of those things where uh, it is hard not to smile. Yeah. When so you, you hear like, that. Something's about good's about to happen to somebody. <laughs> yeah. It's um, my brother-in-law uh, says that quite a bit. Uh, whenever he's at a concert, uh, he gets excited when he smells weed in the air. Uh, he doesn't smoke himself, but he knows that somewhere somebody's having a good time. Yes. And that gives him like a lot of pleasure knowing that somebody's having a good time. And it's also probably the contact eye. But um <laughs> Well, he's a good man. That's a yeah. good way to think. But there, but there are some fun things. And, and as a writer, and I mean, as much as you are a brewer, I mean, you are also a, a, an influential writer um, of this genre, of this subject, of this subject matter. How often do you think about the tangential things, the you know, the 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 experience of what happens when we hold a glass of beer uh, in our hands? You know, is that is that is that something that comes to you often or oh, are yeah. you just yeah i mean you know i have you know i have no flyweight silverware okay <laughs> you know at home it's all old it's all like bought in flea markets and whatever else because yeah the, i mean and this is proven by research the flavor of the food and the drinks are greatly changed by forks knives plates glasses uh, no one on earth can taste something off a paper plate the same way. You can try as hard as you want. It doesn't work because, you know, you're, what you think is a sense of taste is, is, is greatly visual. It's greatly, you know, even the weight of something in your hand, sure. uh, uh, you know, gives you an idea of value and changes the flavor. Yes. You know, you're not a gas chromatograph. Um, and, and good thing, too. And so when you bring to that flavor, you may also bring with it uh, a set of memories. And I find these things fun to play with. For example, in Sweden, when we opened up Neue Kanage Brüderiet, we started... Uh, Gesundheit. Uh, yeah, I actually can say that three times fast. Yeah, it's... Um, we, New Carnegie Brewery, we, um, uh, we talked about making a beer that tastes like Aquavit. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not in love with Aquavit. And people explained to me that in Sweden, the flavor of aquavit is the flavor of summer. It's mm -hmm. like the smell of a beach and hot dogs and whatever else we think that smells like summer, suntan lotion and whatever else, that when people smell aquavit in Sweden, yeah. summertime, and summertime is everything. Right. Now- You get the smile, you yeah. get the, yeah. Interestingly, in Norway, it's a flavor of winter. Mm -hmm. you know, very close country, completely different meaning. So if you can light up the parts of someone's brain that say summer, what we did was we replaced all the aromatics in a Belgian wheat beer with uh, aquavit spices. And we named the beer aquavit because we're clever. Uh, uh, and, <laughs> Nobody can and, accuse and, you of not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people, you, when you watch people drink it, and they get it up to their nose, and a big smile breaks out across their face because... The beer actually contains a pun, you know, inside of it. Yeah. The whole story, it's like, here comes the American together with the Swede, and they make a beer for our summer that smells like summer to us. Right. Now, when I taste that beer, I can't have the same reaction to it that they do. I had to talk to people and understand the culture 
And then I'm transmitting my idea about your culture back to you sure. and seeing what it does to you. But I can never feel the same way about Swedish summer that they do. But that's the fun part. That's how I learned something about Sweden that I might not otherwise understand. I mean, it begs the question, though, how come you haven't done a summer beer here in the U.S. that smells like hot dogs uh, and tastes like suntan <laughs> lotion? Uh, I have, you know, I think that. <laughs> To me, it'd be interesting. I wonder whether that would be regional, depending on where you are from, what summer smells like. Um, uh, you, know, you know what? You know what makes me really interestingly nostalgic, and I like the fact that it's two steps removed. The smell of uh, of a barbecue that's been lit, where they use barbecue, whatever a lighter the fluid, lighter, the lighter fluid. fluid liquid. Yeah. So when getting I, like the butane smell yeah, or the kerosene I smell. smell that, yeah. Like now, I don't use that stuff at home. Like I would like I'm like well, that's going to make my don't, but, or, that's yeah. going to make my hot dogs taste like gasoline. Right. But when I smell it yeah. in the air driving around, I'm like ah, that smells great. Right. It smells like China. It smells like there's a good time happening. Um, yeah. Exactly. Exactly that. Uh, speaking of good time happening, so you opened up the labeled uh, Kiwis Playhouse. Yes. The, that was the the cork that popped a few minutes back. And and, and what strikes me, and again, I don't want to get too deep into to flavor because you said we're not allowed to. Um, <laughs> the the kiwi has a much more safe characteristic than than it did before. This is a little yeah. saltier. Um, there's a bit of that savory character uh, that comes through. The, the the fruit is almost when I was talking about candied strawberry before. It's almost a little underripe. It's it's almost like a little firmer kiwi in my mind uh, yeah. as I'm tasting it. Okay, so here's you know here's the the fun thing. We got a whole palette of kiwi fruit, and basically we like to say that we helped. I I peeled for an hour and a half, two hours right. until I, did some stuff I literally yeah. couldn't feel my hands anymore. Okay. And so our guy, Eric Brown, you know, a graduate of CIA, yep. uh, sat there for two weeks with a sharpened spoon and, keel, and, and peeled kiwi fruit to make this beer. Okay, so let that, over, let that just be a lesson for all, all you brewers who want to get into this industry. It's uh, that's yeah, how you well, pay your dues. That's yeah. the thing, though. I mean, that's what I appreciate is like take the time to do the damn work. That's and everybody's got to be down with it because that's part of what we're doing. Some days it's Pilsner, and some days it's something like that. So over the course of that two weeks, some of the kiwis got riper and riper. You start off with some firm rock-like kiwis, sure. but when you get to the end of that palette, some of them, and we went through a full range of ripeness. Not only that, but part of what you're noticing is that we had some beer that we had aged uh, in barrels and that didn't have a home, and we kept looking for, you know, this is nice, but it's not good enough by itself. It's going to be a great blend into something someday. Yeah. And I remember we were sitting there and we're tasting through and we're like, I don't know, it's bright, but it's lacking something. It, it doesn't have the full depth of what we would like to have on the shelf. And then I said, that that's what we need from that stuff. It was in white wine barrels and it had a beautiful character and it was already a year and a half old. So at the time that we did the blend for this, we had a few months old uh, beer with the kiwis in it, but then we blended in beer that was already a year and a half in the barrel, and that's what brings up the savory qualities and the aged qualities that otherwise wouldn't be there. 
you know, it's almost like doing a cuvee of champagne or something. You're bringing in some old wines and some fresh wines and you're building, you know, a structure where, you know, you can look at it different ways. The the older one is is brighter and more refreshing. Yeah. But it's also more monochromatic in some ways compared to this. You know, this is more like, a, a, you know, a, a big, you know, a, a big, you know, classical Chablis that's carrying some oak character and it's got that kind of weight uh, to it. And weight, weight is a good word uh, for this, for something that is uh, still as bright and still as effervescent as it is. It, it really does have some heft. Um, you can taste the real fruit in there, and, yeah. and that's—I I know you were sort of um, uh, pushing off on extracts before, and 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 it's amazing to me uh, walking the floor of the craft brewers conference every year, or any of these smaller. Uh, we were down in Florida. Uh, I, you gave the the keynote uh, at the Florida Brewers Conference a couple weeks ago, and I was down there, um, and you see the trade show that's happening and this whole thing, and there's all these flavor companies that are here right now. Oh yeah, like, we get emails. Oh, every you day. want you want bananas? I got I yeah. got banana extract for your hefeweizen. Like right here, here, you know, like what do you need? Like uh, somebody. Somebody sent me a an email yesterday. I swear for wood extract. You know, he's like, you want like to add more depth to your barrel aged beers. Uh, uh, perhaps you would like some of this like oh, wood juice. Jesus. But they've been selling this stuff to the wine industry for years. For years, right? And they know that somebody. I mean, we all know who's uh, who's already uh, uh, drunk some of the Kool Aid. You know. Um, <laughs> but some of these some of these brewers at festivals have lines in front of them, right? And it's all artificial flavors. Yeah. And they're like... Oh, you like that grapefruit? It's the same powder that goes into Flintstones vitamins. Yeah. yeah, ex ex yeah. Exactly so. It's exactly the powder that goes into Flintstones and, vitamins. Yeah. you know... Uh, it's why adults it's, like it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so widely done in the wine industry. They're like, well, eventually... You know, and I remember, you know, the, the Empire Strikes Back... When Luke asked Yoda... You know, is the dark side... Star Wars came Is up. the dark yeah. side more powerful? And Yoda's like... No, quicker, easier, more seductive, and, and that. But that is the dark side. You know, you. There are times when you look at, well, you know, uh, can I get the orangey flavor without juicing? You know, without uh, without juicing with uh, various types of essences and extracts, and I want I, I want to get there by by paths that I will always be happy to describe to people. Uh, 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 and never feel any wish to tell anything but the truth. Sure. So in the beginning of this conversation, uh, way back, I asked about the biggest challenge the industry faces that isn't talked about enough. And and I think that that is one of them as well. I, 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 as craft beer grows or independent beer or whatever uh, buzzword we'll be calling it in, in, in five years from now, but as the brewing industry in America continues to grow, more and more people come on, and there are fewer and fewer examples of – uh, breweries like this or Sierra Nevada or, you know, some of the others that re really stand on their own two feet and, and are transparent about it, it's very easy for beer to become wine or spirits where there are things that are done that people just sort of take for granted. And to, as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, th is this where we start to lose our soul? I think, you know, to me, yeah, it is. And, you know, you, you start to lose your soul in many situations when the money shows up. And frankly, you know, when I can say whatever I want, but if people are waiting online for this and I'm yeah. like, well, it, it tastes like butter 
And you're like, yeah, but, you know, it looks like sludge and tastes like butter, but it's got a really cool can. And the kids are online and they're perfectly happy to pay four dollars, you know, uh, a, a can. And they're trading with each other. And like we're making money hand over fist. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to tell them? You know, like, don't don't do that. I mean, that if that's the thing that they came for, then that's the thing that they're buying. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to be sitting there jumping up and down saying, get off my lawn. At the same time, I think that you can end up missing the point. And I know so many of these brewers who got who are caught in that trap of new cool can every week to get the line. And if you repeat one of these beers, they tell me nobody shows up. Right. And so they are actually frustrated by the model that they have made. And I've seen this happen before. Um, uh, there was a, a, a well-known uh, large brewery that had a highly extract-flavored beer back in the day um, where I went to see the brewers and they told me that their beautiful new brewery operated extremely well and this was the best thing ever. And I asked them, I said, why? Why, if this brewery is so wonderful, do you all seem so miserable? And it's because and he said it's because we are miserable. We're like this isn't what we came here for. We're sitting here. We're pushing buttons. Um, we're looking at screens, and we don't even like our main our main beer. Yeah, you know, it's box. You know, we call it product inside the brewery, and it's like you're moving boxes. And we're successful, but we feel bad about ourselves and we feel bad about what we're doing every day, you know. And, well, the thing is, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you feel like, well, that's not why, that's not the thing I fell in love with. That's not why I came to be a brewer. Sure. You know, I didn't show up in the first place for the money. Like, you need the money. But the purpose of Brooklyn Brewery, really, at the end of the day, and my partners here and there, I'm sure, will disagree with me depending on the day. Yeah. But I think that the the basic truth of the brewery is that the purpose of Brooklyn Brewery is for us to be happy. That is the purpose of the brewery. Now, within the that purpose of the brewery, there is contained, we do need to make a profit or yes. the brewery will close, which will make us unhappy. Right. We do need to make great beer for our customers because, frankly, we have egos and we're going we're gonna to feel bad if we think we're making crap beer or if our customers think we're making crap beer uh, and that then becomes circular. So part of our happiness is that we are sustainable and is that, is that our, we feel that our beer is of high quality and everybody wants to win. And so as we go through it and we chase the rabbit, as I call it, whether it's driving down oxygen numbers or whatever else, you know, the, the feeling that you're doing the best work is a beautiful feeling. And I think that there's a poison in that niggling thing in the back of your head saying, you know, we could do better than this and we could be more creative than this, but we can't be bothered. And once you go to the, I can't be bothered to try to be, to try to be the best, well, now you're completely screwed. Yeah. Like you, 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 you have nothing left. You might as well go, you know, pursue some other career. Right. How personally do you take the criticisms of of which things? There are so many things well, about me to criticize. 
<laughs> I mean, nobody can say anything bad about your hat because it's just it's no, a, my, it's, it's my, a great my, hat. My, my hats um, are, are uh, uh, cannot be impugned. No, they, are, they are they are beautiful unto themselves. I just remember having a conversation with you years ago when the concoction came out, uh, beer based on the penicillin oh, cocktail, yeah. and I, I think people were so firmly divided into yes. this is a miraculous thing, and I want more of it in my life, and the rest of us who are like. Okay, I can appreciate what this is, but if I never taste this again, I, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd be happy with it. And and we had a conversation back then of what you do is so public. It, it's an art that you put out. It's a product that you put out. It's 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 something that you spend time with your team uh, obsessing over. And by the time it leaves the brewery, hopefully, it's in the way that you 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 want it to be. And you can't be everything to everybody. I mean, we saw that happen with beer in the past, yeah. uh, post-prohibition, and what did we get for it? You know, flavorless American lager. So having flavor out there these days, meaning that there's going to be critics, but do you read any of this? Do you pay attention to any of this? Do, do, does Is this water off a duck's back, or is it... Uh, uh, I pay very little attention to it. I almost never read any of the beer websites or, or whatever else. Um, I think that you, in in not paying any attention, you do risk being divorced from from culture. Yeah, you know, from the culture. Like, right. I mean, the fact of the matter is that most of the time at home, I don't go to beer bars. Right. My friends don't want to go with me to beer bars. Guess right. why? So, th- it's it's like, well, I might have a good time, but then you're also dealing with you know talking to other people, and they're very nice to me, but you know, but your friends get ignored. So why are we going to go there? So there's that, but there's also, to answer your question more directly, I didn't realize the extent to which it actually did sting until we put out a beer, this is maybe two and a half years ago, uh, uh, called uh, Quintoceratops. Oh, I remember that one. And Quintoceratops uh, was based upon really funky uh, Trinidadian rum barrels. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that I failed to recognize, and I still love that beer, but the thing I failed to recognize is that I'm hanging out with cocktail and spirits geeks. So, to me, what rum tastes like is like Jamaican pot still whiskey. Sure, some of the funkier rums that are out there. Which is a scary liquid. I mean, it is not, it does not taste like Bacardi. It does not taste like a, a caramel candy. You know, they used to call it, you know, the devil's piss. I mean, that it has, it's like putting a, a really ripe, funky cheese in front of somebody who is used to like craft cheddar and saying, I want you to be down with this. And some people were like, no. Right. And so I did look it up one day, and I think on Beer Advocate, it had like a 78. Like the lowest, and you remember from when we were kids, like yeah. a seventy-eight. Sure, you'd passed, but your mom is not going to be happy yeah. when you get home. You know, with with a, with a seventy-eight. And I had never paid any attention to this before, but suddenly now, when somebody slaps me upside the head, now I want to know. And I'm reading these comments, and some are glowing, and some are like filled with like uh uh, uh you know, geez, we this is this is horrible. And then I went to Sweden. Yeah. And everybody loved it. And, okay. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, like, what's going on here culturally? And I asked a couple of Swedes, and they're like, oh, yeah, we, this is a great flavor. It's like, well, 
why do you guys all love it? And about a, at least a third of people at home really hate it. Yeah. And it's like, well, we drink Swedish punch. And I was like, well, what's in Swedish punch? And they said, Arak, which is yeah. the funkiest spirit going on the face of the earth. So I came to understand not, there's a cultural context to all these things. You know, when you're going to tell a story, it is like filmmaking. If you're making a sequel to something, have people seen the original film. And when I watch a sequel, you can see the way they put it together so that the people who saw the previous films get a continuing line and people who didn't see it still have a movie to see. And for the penicillin, the problem was almost nobody had seen the movie. Right. So when the sequel came in the form of a beer, they were unmoored and had nothing to, to attach to. And you can, you know, climb up into yourself and become so solipsistic that you that you you're not really paying that much attention to your you know to your audience anymore and what maybe should have been a ghost bottle you know became one of these i stopped feeling sorry for myself you know after a day or two when i because i felt bad i did feel bad i felt embarrassed you know people are saying these things like oh your latest beer is crap and then i thought about and i'm not putting myself in this range but you know going back to filmmaking Suppose you're Steven Spielberg and you have made lots of money for people. You've made billions of dollars. You've made all these wonderful films. You've won the Academy Awards. And then you put out 1942 or whatever that movie was called, 1941. 1941, yeah. And just an absolute, utter flop. Right. If the internet was around back then. That everybody hated. There was a a thing in the Times today about how Rotten Tomatoes is really hurting ticket sales. Yeah. and can you imagine being Steven Spielberg? And you not—it's not—it's not you. You have hundreds of people, you know, working, working on this thing. It. Their names are on the credits. Yeah. They marched in there proudly. Millions and millions of dollars have gone into it, you know. And this thing falls on its face on the first day. I yeah. mean, can you imagine the despair sure. that that could drive? It's like I was like—I just said to myself, like, you better toughen up. Like, I gotten too used to people being nice to me all the time, and that's pretty dangerous. You start, you start believing your own press, you know, you're, you're, you're really in trouble. And I think that there is a part of, uh, of me that I loved it, and I'm like, well, everybody's going to love it. And it's like, yeah, you're, you know, your kid is, uh, is not as beautiful to everybody else as they are to you. It's just the way that it is. And you've got to be willing to, uh, you got to be willing to roll with it. As we start to wrap up here, because you're talking about stories and your tale, I don't want to leave your third ah. bottle that you wanted oh, to, yeah, to talk fun. about. Um, and as you, you sip and swallow and uh, get that bottle opener going. Uh, don't forget swirl. Yeah, and swirl, <laughs> of course. That's uh, um, super important. I, I, I mentioned that you are in this first name club, and I, I, I was curious about getting the slings and arrows uh, that that come your way because brewers in this country, uh, and I've heard you say this before, but I mean, you guys are uh, you're rock stars. You've talked about uh, uh, the NYPD changing your tire uh, once because you were a brewer, and they you know respect what you do, and it is one of those things where I, I think the next generation going forward, where it's been astronaut, it's been uh, you know cowboy, it's been you know some of these like really cool things, but brewer is, is getting up there, and you know being a celebrity um, in this industry. I mean, I don't imagine you got into this to be famous. No, and I've actually 
purposely done things to avoid it. Uh, um, I mean, I've been offered a whole bunch of television shows sure. and things like that because I know people who are actually famous. And the thing that ha- I mean, it's really nice when like one or two times a day, somebody comes up to you in the supermarket and say, hey, love your beer. That's awesome. People are really nice. Do you just hang out in the beer aisle of supermarkets? Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah. Lurk around wearing <laughs> yeah. my logo, you know, see <laughs> if, uh, well, you know, uh, since the original cover of the Brewmaster's Table was uh, was heavily photoshopped in early Photoshop, I have the uh, uh, you know the the galling thing of you know having actually signing books of a picture of me from fifteen years ago, and I never actually look like that. Right. I've had bags under my eyes since I was twelve. Sure. You know, my my face was shellacked by early uh, uh, early, early Photoshop. Yeah. So you know, you 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 kind of come to you know to realize. I can't remember who said it, but uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, popularity is an accident. You know, fame is a vapor, and money takes wings. And the only thing that endures is character. And uh, uh, taking that in mind, I try to you know uh, keep the character and let most of the rest go. You know, and the other thing I've learned, and I watched, I went out to lunch once with Julia Child. And I thought she was the most charming person I'd ever met in my life. And then I realized that I had learned nothing about her during the lunch. She turned everything around to talking about me. Well, no wonder I thought they were, you know, she was charming. Of course. And it taught me something, you know, when I meet people in public, instead of saying, uh, unless they ask, you know, what are you doing? It's like, well, they already have some idea what you're doing. Well, why don't you find out what they're doing? Because that's going to be a much more inf- interesting conversation for both of you. They wouldn't have talked to you if they didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. So um, at the end of a signing line, at a two-hour signing line in Brazil, and a journalist that I was meeting afterwards said, I understand you now. You are Mickey Mouse. And I'm like, <laughs> um, that doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> he said, well, everybody wants a hug and a selfie. And I thought about it, I said, you know, that's the sweetest thing in the world to be Mickey Mouse. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm humbled that anybody could give, uh, 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 you know, could care less about what I go to work and do every day. And that, you know, you can bring a little bit of joy into people's lives. Well, that's the best thing in the world. You know, it's, it may not be curing cancer or something, but uh, on the right day at the right time, it's it's a genuinely beautiful thing thing to do, and I look at the celebrity part as you know it's not me. They don't actually know me. It's I'm a reminder of a thing that's made them happy, and in that I'm representing you know craft beer. But it's sure. not personally like we love Garrett. It's like well if you worked for Garrett you might. You might love Garrett. You might not. You depends know. on the day. So, but depends, depends on, on how many kiwis you have to day. peel with a sharpened e- spoon. E- exactly. Yeah. Thankfully, I think Eric still likes me, but uh, it's hard to tell. <laughs> so but, th- this last beer that you poured, I, I don't, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, this uh, last yes, beer I that you poured, I should interrupt you because it'll be a surprise and boom. Okay. Yeah. So this is black chocolate stout, and no, it's black chocolate stout infused with uh, ghost peppers, serranos. <sighs> That's what uh, it is. Uh, chipotles, fresh uh, uh, peppers. It's got some so, smoke. It's got some it's got, definite yeah. heat coming off of it. You can smell the capsaicin is, coming off is of it. It is pretty hot. 
It's pretty hot, but I find it completely compelling at the same time. Jesus. It carries the fruit. <coughs> yeah, it carries the fruit of the chilies. At first, you're saying to yourself, well, I, you know, nobody could drink this. And then you find yourself having another sip. Did you say there's kiwis in this? No. Okay. So that freeness is the fruitiness of the, of, of the chilies themselves. So how does this fit into the story of Kiwi's Playhouse? Well, it's, it's, it's a matter of playing with, you know, uh, first you have a story and then you have embellishments on a story. This is an old, <laughs> this is an old story. You know, the Kiwi's Playhouse story was embellished with older beer in some ways. This is sort of like um, Elvis Costello brings out an album where he completely, together with Questlove, reworks all of his old songs, right. shreds them apart and puts them back together again. And I remember him saying that some people got angry. And he basically was like, well, guess what? They're my songs. Sure. Like, if I decide I want to put chili peppers and black chocolate stout, I've been making black chocolate stout since 2004, my beer. Like, you get your beer, you can decide whether to put chili peppers in it. So it could be, I mean, we only made a very small amount of this. We didn't have that much chilies. But um, if there was a way to communicate something like this into a beer and do it on this level, um, I mean, we might not make a lot of it, but that's a fun beer to drink. If I had like a, a, a scoop of vanilla ice cream in front of me and some of this, it's, it's compelling. You know, and you can say, well, that's like a cheap trick, but it's actually pretty complex. Sure. And uh, sim simplicity doesn't mean cheap sometimes, or classic doesn't mean cheap uh, yeah. as well. And I, I mean, that's sort of the thing when, when it even just comes to simple vanilla ice cream, though. I, I do see so much of what beer drinkers expect these days has to be big, over-the-top, surprising, bold. And going back to the classics or surprising yourself or reintroducing yourself to familiar flavors can really, I think, at different parts of your life, bring out new thoughts, can remind you of old times, remind you of things that you had forgotten, and life experiences along the way have sort of, you know, brought it. I mean, I understand the, what Questlove is saying, but because it's so personal to people. When, when somebody's having your black chocolate stout, they're not thinking about you. They're not thinking about the process that went into it or the recipe or the hours that, that were spent in the brew house. They're thinking about their holding of the glass, their personal experience you know, of it. And if you mess with that, um, you know, we've seen that happen with beers in the past. You know, people have changed their seasonal recipes and, you know, how can you do this to me? And it's it's not us. It's me uh, yeah. that people that that people worry about. And, and, and you have to. That's the thing. When I, when I write about a flavor happening to me, well, your flavors then happen to somebody else. And whether you're in the room or you're not in the room or they've ever heard of you, um, you know, believe me, it's, it's a strange thing to watch people drink your beer in a bar or uh, be online and you know in a in a store and have them standing right next to you and they just bought some of your beer and maybe it's like your favorite thing right now and there's part of you that wants to say something like hey dude that's mine right you know but but they, they just some guy couldn't care less he couldn't care less yeah. like you you made it so what it's like this is a thing that's going to happen to him and he's happy about it that's that's the, I mean it must be like that for to be a musician and go into a bar and hear your music come over the PA because I text friends of mine like hey I was in the supermarket and your song came on and they're like yeah we're getting to that level now and it's a it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing
But then it's got to be worse when you hear somebody butchering it in karaoke. So it's yeah. Uh, well, yeah. well, there is that. But it's a it's a funny thing. You you do you realize in all these things that you you can't be you can't be everything. You can't be a, a elder statesman and the new guy. You know, at the same time, you know, you want to be this part of you that wants to be because you want to, you know, you want to put on the full thing that's going on in your head. But I do want to avoid, uh, you know, being typecast, you know, because I think that uh, people will tend to think of us sometimes if they only know part of us as, well, they're classicists, where in fact, you know, we've never really been classicists. We do some classics. Um, but I think that we're also highly inventive, you know, at, at the same time and that we do a lot of stuff that you will see other people doing in years, but not yet. Well, stay tuned as they say. Do stay tuned. Yeah. Mr. Garrett Oliver, uh, thank you so much. Always good to be here. That is Garrett Oliver. He is the brew master of the Brooklyn Brewery and you can learn more about him and his beers at brooklynbrewery.com. We are just getting started, by the way, with this new podcast, so please subscribe if you found this. Uh, look for new episodes every two weeks and learn how to be a better beer drinker and home brewer by visiting beerandbrewing.com. And if you want to reach out to me to uh, ask questions or suggest guests, uh, Twitter's the best way, and it's John underscore Hall, H-O-L-L. And from Brooklyn, thanks so much for listening and cheers. I can only promise you happiness, nothing else. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That was great. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.